This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, friends, to another edition of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me, as always, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. Um, Sam, are we excited to be done with Genesis 1 or sad to leave it behind? I, I love Genesis, so I could I could hang out and just talk about Genesis all day. This this is this is my Romans for you. Okay, okay. <laughs> Genesis two is an interesting chapter for me because you know when it starts off with "Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them," and then on the seventh day God rested. God has created vacation. <laughs> Yeah, this this word for rest is it'll actually be a big theme throughout the the Bible when Jesus comes and says, you know, come unto me all ye who are heavy heavy laden and I will give you rest, rest for your souls. This idea of God resting is not that he's tired, you know, he doesn't have sore muscles or anything. Uh-huh. Um but it's it's the idea that he has gotten done with all of his his work and the first six days of creation and at this moment he kind of stops for a moment and he is enjoying everything that he's done he's looking at what has been accomplished and now he's resting and just enjoying what he has accomplished and we did a podcast on this once before matter of fact the very (laughs) first episode of out of water was on the subject of rest. It was on rest. It was on the Sabbath, and it was on rest. And uh, it drew... It feels like a million years ago already. It was 70 episodes ago. Um, And uh, and I thought we we covered it really well from the subject of, you know, busyness and overwork and lack of rest and lack of peace and everything. But one of the things that we didn't really touch on then, and we, we covered a lot of aspects of it, but something that I'm hearing here as we talk about the beginning of Genesis 2 is that this period of rest is all also in a period of appreciating what has been accomplished. You know, the, when the Lord has finished his work, he looks back and he's resting. And when we read in Genesis, it says that the Sabbath is going to be the seventh day. And, you know, so we read that, okay, the seventh day is the Sabbath. But in, in, in the church today, when we gather on Sundays, that's not the day that it's talking about in Genesis. You know, Sunday is the first day of the week in the Lord's calendar. Saturday was actually the original Sabbath. And so everything shifted. And what's, what's kind of fascinating to me is, so if you go back to the beginning, the Lord rests after his work, right? right he looks right. back and says, okay, everything is as I want it to be, and I'm pleased. When you get to the New Testament, the reason why the early church shifted and they started celebrating the Lord's Day or the Sabbath on Sunday was because that was the day of Jesus' resurrection. And on the morning of the resurrection, the, the, the even greater work of making all things new, right, mm-hmm. has been done. And on the morning of the resurrection, Jesus is resting from his labors of what it's going to take to make a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. And he makes us into new creations. Um, and so there's all this talk in the gospel that God is making all things new, right? Well, when did that get accomplished? It was accomplished in the power of the resurrection. And so the Lord and the second creation, the new creation, 
he rested on the morning of the resurrection. So it's looking at the gospel saying, okay, God has once again made a new creation. And the day that he rested was the day of the resurrection. So then it's not a matter of whether it's the seventh day or the first day. It's mm-hmm. it's God resting on that day because he's finished his work. Yeah. And yeah. so, I mean, we would totally yeah. still acknowledge that the original Sabbath, Sabbath was Saturday. Saturday yeah. right? And there's, there's some, you know, Jews still practice worship on the Sabbath, which for them goes from Friday night to Saturday night. Seventh-day Adventists would be the same. You know, they, they still acknowledge the seventh day as the Sabbath sure. and would take issue with what I'm saying. They would be like, whoa, 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 you can't do that. Um, but what's interesting is you go back and you look at the early church and some of the earliest church fathers like Ignatius, you know, he says, we're no longer living for the Sabbath, but for the Lord's Day. That's his quote. Uh-huh. Um, or Justin Martyr, who's one of the earliest church fathers, where he says, Sunday is the day on which we hold our common assembly because Jesus Christ, our Savior, on the same day rose from the dead. The earliest Christian manual that came out, the Didache, um, instructed believers to gather together for communion and assembly on the Lord's Day, teaching. And so it began to replace what the, what the Jews of Jesus' day did with the synagogue. The Christians slowly but surely began doing it on the Lord's Day to commemorate the resurrection. Jesus in the New Testament when he says, you know, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Mm, okay. And and so what he means by that is like, look, this was a gift that God gave to the slaves coming out of Israel, right? Where they slaved away for seven days. And the Lord said, no, 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 you're going to follow after my pattern where I work for six days and rest for one. I want you to enjoy that, to be in communion with me on that day, mm. to be with me. And that's... That's the idea. The Sabbath is not a, hey, you must do this. The sure. Sabbath is a gift. Yeah. It's the Lord saying, hey, I want to be with you. If it's a time period in your week or in your life in which you give no thought to the Lord, then it's mm-hmm. probably not a Sabbath. Mm-hmm. Because this really is for time for you to set aside from your normal work and your normal way of doing things. And, and, and to have that time that you can be with the Lord. So there is a there is a sense in which it's not just, hey, it's it's my day off, so let me go do a barbecue in the backyard. I mean, that yeah. may be part of what you do on your Sabbath, but if that if the focus of your Sabbath is the barbecue, then yeah. that's not a proper Sabbath. Correct. Okay. So like while I'm I'm not somebody who is super strict there are people that I love and respect and who love Jesus more than I do who I take know some a, of those names. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, they the, take they take a hard line view of the Sabbath. You know, like any meal that you're eating on Sunday, they've prepped on Saturday so that there's not even an right. approaching, you know, there's no work at all. You know, I don't go as far as them, but I really appreciate the heart of what they're doing. So long as it's not done in a legalistic way of saying, oh, I've got to earn God's favor through this and I've got to obey the rules to, you know, get his affection. Like, no, it's it's them trying to really be deliberate about yeah. resting on that day. And I think that's a beautiful thing. And to be honest, you know, the side that takes liberty and says, well, the Sabbath doesn't require me to blah, 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 blah. More often than not, we don't take the Sabbath anywhere near seriously enough because it's a it's an amazing blessing that God commands us to say, you are not sufficient on your own. You ha- you need to stop for a number of reasons. One, you need to stop and look back at your week like like God did and really enjoy what he's enabled you to do and to enjoy the things that he's given you, to enjoy the fruit of your labors. 
But also, like, you can't make it without filling your tank with the Lord, drawing near to Him, being in relationship with Him, letting Him remind you of who you are and just kind of basking in His love. Mm-hmm. Like, y- you're not made to do this life in your own labors. And so, for those of us who kind of say, oh, yeah, the Sabbath, yeah, whatever, you know, that's, I don't, I don't take a strict view of that. Chances are, if, if that's our attitude, we're probably passing up some real beauty that God has offered to us in the Sabbath. Yeah. So after the the first three verses where God establishes that he rested on the seventh day, then we get into the creation of man and woman. Mm-hmm. It says, uh, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground and a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground what do you what do you think that means is that like is that like god's sprinkler system what is it what do you think yeah, that I is i really don't know exactly what that is cuz we don't have i mean it, it, like fog or mist or something um the literal word there's kind of spring so it's like it's it's being f- fed from below right so it's almost like aquifer system underground sprinkler system like you said is is watering the world you know there's no rain coming down from the skies yet so it's it's a really bizarre thing and all this is going to change after the flood so uh it's it's like something is triggered with the flood that changes the way that the water cycles work, mm-hmm. um, which is really kind of bizarre, but it, it's interesting. It seems like the conversation changes from let's talk about this creation that I've made to and I've created man. And now we're going to spend a lot of time talking about man and all the things that are going to go wrong there. It's almost as though. <laughs> well, it is. It's almost as though we, um, you know. It was like once man showed up, that was all that any, that was all that was worth talking about because things were just going to go wrong in a big hurry. So in verse seven of chapter two, it says, "Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature." Um, it, what's significant about that? <laughs> I mean, there's there is a ton of stuff that's right. I mean, that one verse, big time. Yeah, and you know, and and even before that, we've kind of gotten into this place where people might be asking this question when it says no bush of the field was yet in the land. I mean, it's talking about the day that God is going to make man, and you're going, wait a minute, hold on, man is created on day six. Right. The the bushes of the field were supposed to be, you know, back in day three. And so people say, well, this must be – so if, when you get into academic circles and you get to the kind of skeptical voices, sure, they'll say that Genesis 2 is actually a competing creation narrative. Um, and the reason why they do that is they say, hold on, how can there be no bush of the field yet in the land and no small plant of the field? And people have done all sorts of gymnastics to try to make <laughs> sense of this. And what I think makes the most sense that's so when it uses the the expression in the Hebrew, the bush of the field and the small plant of the field, those are different Hebrew words than what you find in the creation narrative on day three. And what they make the argument is, okay, so God has made Adam and he's placed him in a garden. And before these two particular Hebrew words for plants have come, God makes the man. 
And so they say these two particular plants are what make the garden unique. You, you follow? Sure. And so God is going to make, you know, like a, you know, some particular type of plant that's going to be unique to his design in the garden. And then he's going to tell the man, okay, now your mission is to take the garden to the end of the uncultivated earth. Mm-hmm. And so they'll say that these plants are specific to the garden, okay. which makes the most sense to me. I don't know where that lands in most academia, but that's the one that. Because this whole thing is God giving man a mission to take the garden to the end of the earth is going to be the idea. And so it makes sense that he makes the garden unique. What was it that was unique about the garden as a as a spot on the earth versus any other spot on the earth? Was it the fact that, that that's where God and man were together? Yeah, I think so. so. So it's kind of weird. He makes man, right? We find him making man in verse 7. It says, Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And then verse 8 is, And then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, and he put the man there whom he had formed. And so he makes the man before he makes Eden, and that's instructive. It's actually pointing to something, okay. as all of Genesis is doing. But let's let's pause for a moment <laughs> real quick and go back to this notion. Every every way that God has made Adam in the beginning is all anticipating the gospel. So so like the the first detail that you find here in verse seven, he makes man from the dust. Why? Like what is dust? Um, dirt, ground, the it's elements dirt, of the world. Ground. Yeah. But all through scripture, whenever you find dust being talked about, it's well, almost always the emblem of death. Yeah, yeah right? death, right. You know, from dust you're taken to dust you will return. Right. And the Bible you ever read where you know that it'll talk about somebody who's in mourning and they'll put on sackcloth and sackcloth yeah. and they'll throw ashes or dust on their head. And it, what it, what they're saying, they're acting it out with this is I am dying. Like this is this is putting me down into the dirt. I'm I'm like decaying under this grief is the idea or you know David when people hated David when he was being you know marched out of town they're throwing dust at him right well what does that mean if you're throwing dust at someone it means I want you to die (laughs) you know I want dust to go on you Um, even today like if I said dun 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 another one Bites the dust. Yes, we all Bites know. The dust. We, we all know that Queen song. <laughs> <laughs> but, but what that? What does that mean? Even in modern context, when we say another one bites the dust, it's you've died. You're finished. You've been eliminated. Um, and so, out of the gates, it's saying, "Okay, God creates from the dust." Well, that's that's really comforting to us because guess where we're all going? <laughs> you know, we're all going back to the dust. Sure. But we serve a God who specializes in bringing life from the essence of death. Mm-hmm. And so out of the, even dust in your house is supposed to be like dead skin cells mainly. You know, it's everything <laughs> about it is death. And so then the next one is God breathes his breath into your nostrils, you know, into Adam's nostrils, the breath of life. Mm-hmm. Which that has gospel connotations, right? Where you know, in, in, in the New Testament, we'll be told that the scriptures are God-breathed. They're, they're actually the breath of God. They're inspired. And so that gives life. The word of God actually gives that breath of life. Um, and even the image of God, this is probably one of my favorites, when it says that God creates man and woman in his image, um, 
there's a need where when we fall, we don't lose the image of God, right? We still, we're still made in the image of God, but we're terribly disfigured in our sin, right? Um, when we fall, that perfect image that was given to Adam at the beginning all of a sudden is terribly disfigured. Adam kind of looks at himself and he's like, oh my goodness, I've got to cover myself up. Eve wants to cover herself up behind fig leaves and God's like, oh, that's not good enough. You know, we'll see that at the fall. And the whole rest of the story, is the whole rest of the story of scripture is going to be man trying to find a covering that's adequate, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you're made in the image of God. You've disfigured the image of God. You know, it's it's almost like a burn victim. You know, they look this certain way. They go into the flames. They come out looking. They're still human, but they're disfigured. And now they're looking for some kind of a skin graft to get back to the way they were created. And in the gospel, that's what Jesus does for them. Mm. And so Jesus is going to come, and he is the image of the invisible God. He is God in the flesh, in humanity. And when he goes to the cross, what does he do? He takes his perfect righteousness, and he clothes us in it. Mm -hmm. And so when you read, like every single epistle of Paul just about makes reference to the fact that you are clothed in the righteousness of Christ. If you're baptized in him, you're clothed in him. You put on the new self. You put on righteousness. He's constantly using these metaphors where if you're in Christ, you are putting on his image. And so when, when the Bible opens by saying you're made in the image of God, and then you trash the image of God, there's this conflict of how do I get it back? Well, you can't Mm -hmm. on your own. The only way that you can get the image of God in its original, pristine, innocent, righteous form without all the disfiguring sin and everything else is for God to come and clothe you in himself. That's the only way that you can get back to your original design. Hmm. And God comes and says, here, here is my image again. At the at the cost of my own life, I will suffer to take your depravities and your sin and your scars and your shame and your disfigurement. I'll take it on me, and I'll be marred more than any man, as Isaiah says, beyond human recognition. G- Jesus will lose the image in, in some sense to clothe us in it perfectly. So the three conditions in which man is described, the the image of God, well, Jesus solves that, right? You know, he he gives us his image. The dust, right? He defeats death. He overcomes the dust, and he makes us new out of death and the dust. And then the breath of life, you know, it's, it's the last thing Jesus does on the cross. It says he breathed his last, and that's just a wildly poetic statement that when God dies he breathes out well what does that breath do his last breath when he goes into death brings life to the whole world again you know he is remaking humanity again and so all of these things are anticipating um a future where only god can solve it we we can't fix it we can't remake ourselves and yet jesus will do all of these things to make us new again new creatures this idea that that God breathing onto Adam, I mean, certainly we have to agree that that was something that he didn't do for the other forms of life that he mm-hmm. created. He didn't breathe on them. So there was something that was being imparted to the man at that point that made him unique from the animals. And and I would say that that is that his his spirit, basically. It's God's, you know, the word for uh, wind or breath, ruach, the spirit. Mm-hmm. It's like God 
puts his spirit into us in some sense and makes us a living being. So um, when we have these conversations with about like my goldfish died and I'm very sad, did my goldfish go to heaven? And I'm like, well, you know, I know I'm talking to a five-year-old, so I have to be careful here. But, you know, <laughs> God didn't really breathe on the goldfish, so probably not. But there will be new fish in heaven and there'll be great fish. You know, that kind of thing. You try to find a, a way to answer it. But there is something that happens here that makes man unique among all of the created creatures, uh, this idea that God breathed on them. There's something also in Genesis 1, everything that he creates, we talked about this before, but it'll be, and God said, you know, and, and there's always an intermediary step. So he'll say, let the earth produce this, let the land produce this. But with the creation of man, he doesn't do that. He doesn't say, hey, let the earth bring forth the man. There's an intimacy to where mm-hmm. we're at, with everything else, he just speaks it and it comes into being. Yes. But this verse gives the sense that the Lord pauses for a moment and he gets his hands dirty. You know, he it's, it's like he's he personally forms man from the dust. And there's a there's a pretty it's just a kind of cool intimate picture that we're in that way also set apart. You know, he does things differently when it comes to us. We're made in his image. You know, and yes. He's very personally crafting us to be who he wants us to be. And that continues in verse 8 where it says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden Mm -hmm. in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed that it wasn't that God said, let the uh, let the east spring up a garden. <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah. He formed man, and then he planted the garden. The garden was something that was prepared by God personally for man. And I think that that's, um, obviously, that's one of the distinguishing characteristics of the garden. It's mm-hmm. one of the things that we look forward to when we look forward to that new heavens and the new earth, that they will have been made by God specifically for us, mm-hmm. um, that it's going to be absolutely perfect because he's fashioned it for us yeah. you know yeah it says he goes to prepare a place for us so right now in some sense he's he's preparing a home for us you planting know? another garden yeah which is a cool thought and yeah. um you know that so when it says he planted a garden this is yeah. where the theory that i'd proposed earlier about those particular hebrew words for bush sure. small plant mm-hmm. here he plants them and so he's going to bring forth this new sort of vegetation and and when he plants the garden, one of the ways that I've I've was revolutionary. I feel like we may have talked about this recently, but I always imagined for the longest time that when God got done with creation, that the whole earth was this perfect garden. That everywhere you went, it was just beautiful and amazing, and everything was you know exactly as it was supposed to be. But that's not at all what Genesis 2 is doing. It says, and the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, and and he specifies, it's like this little region, it's in Eden, it's in the east, and God takes man and he puts them in this this little territory that he's made that is Eden. And the, the mission of the cultural mandate where he says, you know, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Uh-huh. The idea of that is, okay, here's this little, and I always like to see it as kind of a starter kit where it's like, you know, if I sit down with my you know six-year-old daughter and she's going, I don't know how to do this. And I say, okay, well, let me, let me help you get started. This is what it's going to look like. Okay. We're going to do this and we're going to do this. And then I say, okay, now you do it. That's kind of how I see when God is, you know, when he's planting a garden in the east and then he puts man there. It's like, okay, here is what would be an amazingly beautiful world. Take it and fill the earth with this. This mm-hmm. is the model. And so Eden is kind of the prototype of what God is inviting man to join him 
you know, it's like he's condescending to allow us to be as ambassadors on earth, to take his perfect, beautiful design to the ends of the earth. And, and so while he's in this perfect garden dwelling with the Lord, he's going out and subduing this land where he was made, you know, mm-hmm. which is uncultivated and making it beautiful. And so that's our call. That's each and every one of us has that calling. So we find an interesting explanation uh, or description in verse 9. It says, And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So there were two trees that were more than just fruit trees <laughs> in there. Um, what, what do the tree of life, what is the tree of life and the tree of knowledge and good and evil? What are, what are those about? So this might be getting ahead of ourselves before we get into Genesis 3, but there's something that's really fascinating. Well, then um, he shouldn't have put it in Genesis 2, so. <laughs> <laughs> But I, to, to, before we get into that, like let, the very next verse, it starts talking about these four rivers, that, and it goes from verse 10 to 14, but it, it says, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers, and it's uh-huh. going to be the Pishon, um, the, the Gion, and the Tigris, and the Euphrates. So these four rivers come out of the Garden of Eden, and the idea is they go and they bring life to the ends of the earth. You know, life always emerged easiest around the rivers. And so here's this idea. You know Eden is a mountain because it sources four different waters. Right. You'll, you'll see where I'm going here in a minute. So and, – and by the way, Ezekiel tells us that Eden was a mountain. So it's a garden on top of a mountain. And I want you to start imagining this in your head, okay? So on top of this mountain, you have two trees, right? You have the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and you have the tree of life. From there, this river flows that's going to bring life to the ends of the earth. This is where God dwells with man, right? Sure. And so that's the Edenic paradise right and then it goes on after this it's going to talk about how all these precious stones and everything else is growing there well when you get to the very end of the story of redemption the way that heaven is described um it's really interesting so when you get to heaven the tree of the tree of life emerges again and you know how it describes heaven it's mount zion it's it's this you know paradisical mountaintop garden city and it has the tree of life that's now growing on either side of the river of life. And so it's all the same. You imagine it. It's a mountain, and it's a garden on top of the mountain with a river coming that is the river of life that brings life to the ends of the ends of heaven, the heavenly city. Again, you have two trees, except now the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is no longer there. And heaven, both sides of the river, have the tree of life. God's throne is in the middle of them, and from God's throne comes the waters that bring life to everyone. And so you have these, if you're imagining this in your mind, which I'm hoping you're following me, both Eden and heaven, mountaintop, garden, two trees, river that brings life to the ends of the earth, God dwelling in the midst, right? Except we lose, in Genesis 3, we lose access to Eden. Well, how in the world are we going to get to the heavenly city that's, it's, that's kind of almost the, the mirror image of Eden, and you go to the middle of the story of redemptive history and you find another mountain. And this is where – this is just cool. But on this mountain, you climb the top of it and you find Jesus. Mm. And Jesus is now hanging on a cross and on either side of him, you have two men, right? 
um, and they're hanging on the crosses. And throughout the Bible, the crosses are referred to as trees. And so here you have God on top of a mountain that is no garden. It's it's the mountain of the skull, who's flanked by two different trees, one of whom is going to lead to death, the, the thief on the cross that's condemned, and the other one is going to be redeemed. So one's a tree of life and one is a tree of death. And Jesus is hanging there, and it is no accident. I firmly believe that God sovereignly orchestrated this in this poetic picture that when the Roman soldier comes to Jesus on this mountaintop and he pierces Jesus' side with the spear to make sure that he's dead, and it's described almost miraculously that from his side flows this blood and water, well, that completes the picture, Are you following? So Mm -hmm. here comes the river that is pouring forth from the side of the Lord that is going to bring life to the ends of the earth. And so in this very, very bizarre inverted picture, Calvary becomes the glue between Eden, which we've lost, and heaven, which is going to be given to us. But to get that, Jesus takes on this cursed mountain that's kind of the negative picture of both. Mm-hmm. And so by his wounds comes forth the life of the world that will allow all the nations under heaven to have access to the heavenly city, that heavenly mountaintop paradise. Mm. It's really pretty cool the way the whole, and these are written, all of these, by the way, by different authors. So you see the spirit is, is superintending this pattern through different human authors, but okay. they're, they're describing the same poetic vision. Does there is there anything about the description of where Eden, for example, is located here? Because it does tell you kind of specifically where it is, the side of the four rivers. Do we know where the Garden of Eden was, like physically, geographically? Could we go there today? I have seen a special before where they kind of, because the Tigris and Euphrates, they flow south. And so if you follow them from their headwaters, it'll get you into this region that's kind of on the eastern side of Turkey near Armenia. And, you know, they've, I've seen people do research where they believe it's in this valley and, but we don't know. I mean, these rivers over, over, you know, thousands of years have changed course. Sure. You know, who knows? But it's, it is fascinating to think about, but it would be somewhere in that area, we, we presume. Mm -hmm. You know, when, when, when Noah comes to rest on Mount Ararat, you know, humanity had spread out too much by the time of Noah. But when, when Noah comes to rest on Mount Ararat, you know, Ararat, that mountain, mountainous region is right pretty close to where the Tigris and Euphrates headwaters are. Hmm. And so it's, it's in that region somewhere. At least that makes sense to me. Yeah. Well, God, God was going to start again. Why not start in the same place? Hey, there you go. You know. <laughs> so then it says that the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and keep it. And the Lord mm-hmm. God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Um, I, I have questions. <laughs> so, so, but, you know, I, it's like I, I read that and I thought, okay, I, I'm a parent. You're a parent. Mm-hmm. Um What's the what is the thing that you do that you can guarantee is going to is to put something up on the counter that's that's really interesting to look at and shiny and that's like the big glass decanter full of some expensive liqueur or wine for dinner and you look to your child yeah. and you say don't touch it 
Yeah. Mark, don't think of a camel. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> now you can't think of anything except a camel. All right. So you understand what my question is going to be. <laughs> I'll follow it. Okay. The, the question is, it seems to me like God is putting something here and basically daring Adam to eat from it. Is this is the purpose of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is the purpose of that tree to, te- to give us a test that God knew we were going to fail? No. Uh, I, I mean, I think in his sovereignty, he knows exactly where this is going from, from yeah, day one. Obviously, he knows, right. But, you know, we're, we're told in Scripture, God God does not deliberately tempt us, you okay. know, to fall into sin. Will he, will he give us tests? You know, yeah. But, but in this situation, it's an acknowledgement because they have everything. At this point, there's no law. You know, they have everything they could want, all the fruit, all the trees, everything is – goes easy for them. God has given them every blessing imaginable, including his own presence. And it's just like he's saying, this is this is the one thing that I'm going to put here where I need you to acknowledge that I'm still the boss. Mm-hmm. And man can't do it. Okay. You know, man man cannot do it. And so the the flip of that would would be me saying, you know, if I went home, let's use the parenting analogy, mm-hmm. and I said, I'm going to give you son and daughter, I'm going to give you everything that your heart desires, and I'm going to say, you know, I'm trusting you to not abuse my authority, you know, with, with no restrictions. You know, that's that's not healthy. You know, there you need some pattern where, you know, there's submission to your parents. Mm-hmm. And so I think the way that this, this is set up, God is saying, hey, this is the one thing that I'm telling you is off limits. Hmm. And it becomes the one one point of attack for Satan in the next chapter. You know? Yeah. Okay. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Um, mm-hmm. Before uh, Adam and Eve fell, you know, they didn't know evil. You know, it's like mm-hmm. they, their lives were innocent. They were simple. They they didn't, you know, until sin entered the world, sin hadn't entered the world. Mm-hmm. So, um, and, and that, that word know, which we'll talk about next week, that that's not just, hmm, I have an academic understanding of what evil means. And that's mm-hmm. not what we're talking like that. In Hebrew, the word knowledge is experiential. So it's not like they're saturated with shame and evil and all those things. Yeah. Like, that's kind of what it's getting at. And, uh, you know, I just kind of wonder whether that's not significant. It's the tree of knowledge of something that you don't have. You know, mm-hmm. Adam, you don't know good from evil. Now you will <laughs> yeah. because yeah. you're going to eat from the tree. I also read, uh, you know, one of my uh, textual commentaries that I was reading on this says that um, for in the day that you eat of it, they say that that it's that that's actually worded in such a way in the Hebrew to basically say, you will eat of it. Hmm. Like it's a foregone conclusion. They, they, they say that it translates, when you eat of it, you shall surely die. Um, and it does seem as though, you know, God is setting this down and saying to the man, saying to Adam, okay, I have some bad news for you. <laughs> There's this tree in the middle of the garden, and I know you have a lot of trees, but this one you can't have, and yet you're going to want it. And by the way, it's it's God's. So you asked the question, which we'll talk about next week again. I keep teasing okay. out next All week, right. but but why in the world does God put this here if He knows what's going to come of it? Right. You know, it's it's He's unless you believe in open theism where God is totally out of control and doesn't know what's coming. Like, oops, which, you ate yeah, of the tree. <laughs> yeah. Oh no. Why did I put that there? Yeah. Right. 
or, or why, like when Satan fell, he's got a universe of hundreds of billions of galaxies. Why choose this one? Why choose this solar system? Why choose this planet? Why choose Eden to put him in? You know, he could have thrown him anywhere. And yet, that's not beyond God's ability to choose that. And so, what we have to do is then reconcile why is the, if God has done it and we believe that God is all powerful and all good, and that's the big question, right? How does, how do you reconcile the existence of evil with a God that's all good and all powerful? So, we've got to, you know, there's got to be some explanation, or at least we'll have to trust by faith, that when God puts the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden where man is, it's not because God's going, ha, 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 watch this, you know, and and waiting for them to stumble up, and he doesn't put the serpent in the garden because he's like, yeah, this will be funny, let's watch this. Like, that's <laughs> not it. Um, he is actively knowing that he is going to bring about something far more beautiful than had they not been there. And we'll talk about that next week. Teaser. Okay. So then we get to verse 18 where it says, And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. And then he describes, before he gets to that, before he gets to create the helper, he describes a very interesting thing here. He says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. How long would it take you to name every species? How long was Adam there? (laughs) God was bringing things going, what do you call this? Um... A murder hornet. Good. This will be the murder hornet. You know, um, you know. I mean, how literally do we take that? Did did Adam, in fact, come up with the name of every? You know, like, do we? Is it called a lion because Adam said that's a lion? Is it? You know, that kind of thing. I mean, well, no, because Adam didn't speak English. Okay. So, I don't know. When I when I read these, I take them as. You know, I read them literal, but like it's that's not a, that's for me that's not an essential thing. Like, okay. is it every? Is it every? You know, is it a broad class of animals? Mm-hmm. Does he get specific about the different species of mosquito? You know, like I don't think it gets down into the nitty gritty. I think Adam is is calling things by name, right? Um, but there's a greater meaning here. Like again, we get, in Genesis we tend to get caught up in the how. And so those questions come to mind, like, what is that about? Right. And the greater question that Genesis is asking you to see is why. I mean, if God wanted Adam to name every animal, he could, I mean, this is a God who can freeze the sun, pause time, and you can do whatever he wants. He could have easily done that, right. Yeah. So, but the question is, why is God doing this? And so it says, you know, God has looked at man. He says, it's not good for man to be alone. And rather than, you know, and he says, I'm going to make a helper fit for him, right? And so you're expecting God to go, okay, let's get busy making woman. Helper, but he, sure. Yeah, right. he doesn't do that. What he does is he brings every beast of the field and he brings them to the man. And as they're coming, Adam is saying, hold on a minute, I'm different from all of them. All of them have mates. You know, there's there's a male lion and a female lion. There's a male giraffe and a female giraffe. And everything that's coming to him is made in pairs. Um, And he's beginning to realize or recognize, I don't I don't have that. Right. And it's creating very intentionally in the heart of man this sense of I, I need somebody. And God is going to make Adam. And and think about this. We're in the garden. This is pre fall. Right. Right. And God is creating a longing in Adam for something that he doesn't have. 
Hmm. You think about that. Think about mm-hmm. the implications of that. That's that doesn't mean it's broken. That doesn't mean it's sinful. Uh, Tim Keller has a line where he says, um, "the the the hunger for relationship that you see here in Adam is is not a sign of brokenness. Right? Um, it's a sign of what he is made to be. Like we're made for this community." Um, Adam's not lonely because he's imperfect. Adam is lonely because he's made exactly according to how God wants him to be. And and before he he yeah yeah, before he brings forth Eve, he's creating in Adam a heart that will appreciate her. Yeah, we were built to uh, live in community. Yeah, totally, absolutely. Um, So then the man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. And one of these days, I assume we're going to have the opportunity to ask Adam what he was thinking when he said, "Mm, that's an anaconda. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) But for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh, and the rib mm-hmm. that the Lord God had taken from the man he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Now, um, what are the symbols telling us there? So what this te- this is so absolutely crystal clear pointing to the gospel. Sure. And, and the, the New Testament doesn't miss this, okay? So you, at the beginning, you have God who says, it's not good that the man should be alone. Well, who is this man? It's Adam. What do we know about Adam? Well, it's before the fall, so he's sinless, right? And yet, the sinless man needs a bride. Well, how does God go about that? In a sinless world where there's no fall, right? There, there should be no bad things before the fall. And yet, what, what does God do? It says, the Lord God puts man to sleep. And this, this by the way, the person who came up with the idea of um, anesthesia mm-hmm. was inspired by this. Like, really? I wonder, yeah, I wonder if you can recreate that deep sleep. And this was one of their inspirational passages because this, this expression, deep sleep, doesn't happen in the scripture. It's pretty unique to Genesis 2. Um, and so he causes him to fall into a deep sleep. Well, what is that? What's that begging you to think of? You know, it, that deep sleep is like like death, death, yeah. right? And so Adam is put into a deep sleep. And even though, you know, if you were reading this and you didn't know where it was going, you would just assume, oh, well, he's making another human being. He's going to bend down. He's going to grab a, a handful of dust. He's going to put it together, breathe into the nostrils, and we're good to go. He's made another one. But he does something unbelievably beautiful here that is so instructive for not only human relationships, but the gospel itself. He takes the sinless man who's in this posture of death and he wounds him. You know, when it says he takes one of his ribs, the, the Hebrew word literally means like a, a substance from his side. Mm-hmm. We don't know that it was a rib. Might have been a love handle or something, which is kind of <laughs> weird to think of. But, um, but anyway, he takes the rib, heals the wound raises up this sleeping man out of this position of death and presents a bride to him. And that is the gospel. Like, that's exactly what will happen with Jesus, the sinless man. God wants a bride from him. Who's that bride going to be? Well, that's us. And so what does God do? He takes the sinless man, and though he hasn't done anything wrong, he's going to put him into a posture of death. He's going to wound his side from the substance that's coming out of his side, meaning the blood, the wound, God is going to create a brand new, pure, beautiful bride. Mm. God is going to then take that man and get this. He's going to place him in a garden, right? He's Mm -hmm. in a garden tomb. And when the stone is rolled away and Mary Magdalene, 
first has the encounter with Jesus. Who does who does she think he is? The you know, she's yeah. yeah. Oh, he must be the gardener, right? And he says her name, and she goes, "Raboni." She knows that it's him, and that's just this really beautiful moment. But it's the gospel is telling you he is the new Adam, and we are the new Eve. All things have been made new, um, and it's this beautiful picture. What's the implication of that? Is God spelling out before the fall ever happened that the sinless man is going to be wounded to bring forth the bride? He's he's singing about the gospel to come before the fall ever happened. Now, you might think, how could he do that? Oh, my goodness. Do you mean that he wanted this? It means that God is so absolutely in control of this story that he is writing this beautiful story to the glory of his son to exalt us as a bride. Uh, uh, by the way, notice he says, I will make a helper fit for him. That's what he says about Eve. So if this parallel holds, that means that you and I are going to be fit for him. <laughs> you know, can you imagine saying of Mark Lottenschlager, yeah, he's suitable for the Son of God? Hmm. Imagine what that means. God is going to have to do to you and I. I what kind saying, of? <laughs> there's going to be some renovation required. <laughs> that, that's what I'm saying. I mean, what, the the amount that He is going to glorify us to where when Jesus looks at us, He's not like, "All right, we'll settle." You know, yeah, I'll take them. No, like helper suitable for right. him you are going to be the delight of the eye of God, yeah. and that's mind-blowing when you put this all together. And so in the New Testament, when it refers to Jesus as the last Adam, um, you know, this is in mind. It, we are going to be made into the last Eve, mm. this pure bride made from the wound of the sinless man mm. raised up in a garden, mm. you know. And that's that's cool. That's just awesome. And one of the other things that comes out of this is God is telling us what? You know, the first relationship that he makes between human beings comes out of a wound. Mm -hmm. That says a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, there's so much in that. And, and it's, it's like this. The most authentic, the deepest forms of love don't come cheap. The greatest love that you've experienced in your life, your best friends, the people where you have sensed the most authentic love are those that were willing to take wounds for you, those who suffered for you. Um, and that's what, you, you know, when Jesus says, greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, and he's talking about himself. You know, he's saying the greatest love comes with those that are willing to die for you. Mm. Um, and that's the pattern out of creation. Eve doesn't come cheap. Eve comes with a wound and that makes their marriage set up for strength. Even before the fall, God wants Adam to know that he should be willing to sacrifice for his bride. Mm. Paul says in Romans that uh, whom God calls, he justifies and whom he justifies, he also glorifies. You know, it's... Uh, it is our destination, but it's good to know that we're not responsible for the renovation. That God, <laughs> that God will, sure. God has a plan uh, to to make us suitable. Yeah, one of the things, like you read in Peter's letters, like when Ed talks about what he's going to do with us, it it blows my mind because in in 
in Thessalonians, it talks about how the whole kind of purpose statement for God, the story of the gospel is that we will share in his glory, it says, or in, you know, where Peter writes that our eventual destination is to become what he says, partakers of the divine nature. Mm-hmm. It's like all of his glory just pours out, fills us up. We're going to be overflowing with his perfection, his glory, his radiance forever. Um, just making who he's made us to be even more beautiful, shining his his glory through us hmm. um, to where when he looks at us, it's not – like I said, it's not going to be, all right, I'll settle. It's going to be, oh, my goodness, I can't believe this is my bride, and I'm so excited about it. Yeah. Um, that day is coming where Jesus is going to have eye contact with you, and it's not going to be, oh, my goodness, what does he see? You're going to be floored. By the fact that his eyes catch yours and you just see him utterly satisfied in who you are. Hmm. You know, one of the things that probably bears mentioning at this point, uh, just because I think it's really powerful, um, is that uh, when God says back in verse 18, that's not good for man to be alone, I will make him a helper suitable for him. The word that's used there in the Hebrew is azer. And it's it's an interesting word. because it's used in the Old Testament almost exclusively, God refers to himself mm-hmm. as our azer, as our help. Um, and I, I think there's a sense in which, uh, you know, helper is, is perceived now as a subordinate position. Mm-hmm. I think we talked about this when we did the thing on Ephesians 5, when we were going through Ephesians and we were talking about, um, <clears throat> the you know, just the gender uh, complementarian and egalitarian and this kinds of thing. And one of the things that we acknowledged was that this term, this idea of women being created in some sort of subordinate position to man is, a, is an absolute it's not true at all, you know, mm-hmm. that when God created this, he's saying to Adam, I'm going to, or saying, I'm going to create this azer, this helper. It doesn't mean a subordinate or, or lesser position anyways. What, what does azer mean? What's, what is the meaning of that? What's God saying? In the scriptures where you find that in other places in, in the Hebrew Tech, it's it's you know God of my help, mm-hmm. and and there's a sense of salvation to it, you okay. know, and and the idea is I cannot fully become who you've made me to be unless you intervene, unless you bring me to that place where I can be who you've made me to be, because independently uh, okay. apart from you, I'm I'm not I'm not I'm not going to cut it, <laughs> you know, okay. and so like you would say as Christians we would say man apart from the Lord. We're a train wreck, yeah. you know, like we can't become who we're made to be outside of the, the grace and mercy of Christ. We need his presence, the power of the Holy Spirit in us. And from the moment of creation, what this is is getting across is it's like we need one another. We need human relationships, mm-hmm. and in this case, Eve to make Adam everything that he was supposed to be. And by the way, that then applies reverse to Eve. You know, she's not made for independence either, but there's a sense in which you become who you're made to be. This this almost a not salvation in the sense that we think of it, but a salvation in in terms of you, you're becoming the fullest version of yourself when you're in community. Mm-hmm. And let's not forget that when God says, let us make man in our image, and he creates the male and female, part of that image is the fact that he's a triune God who has been eternally in relationship. And so until Adam has another one to relate with, he's 
deficient in some sense of being in the image of God because mm-hmm. the image of God requires community. And so being an azer enables Adam to be every bit that he's supposed to be. And for Eve, it, Adam makes it makes her able to be everything that she's supposed to be. Mm-hmm. But it's a sense of completion, like we're meeting our purpose is the idea. Okay. And then verse 23, the man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Um, First of all, I think that's an interesting thing to end on. They were naked and not ashamed (laughs) is an interesting way to wrap up chapter two. But um, when when Adam says bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, is there is there some special meaning to that also? Yeah, so we just talked about how in heaven, you know, Peter throws these throws these labels on us like we're partakers of the divine nature. Uh-huh. Um, so Adam essentially is saying that, except physically speaking, right? You're bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Whereas the, the New Testament, the promise is, you know, we're not only going to be remade physically to where you know our physical beings will be glorified and made perfect. But we will become almost spirit of his spirit, mm-hmm. in a sense. You know, like, like his spiritual nature, his divine nature is going to flow and flood through us. So Jesus doesn't just perfect the external, you know, and, and, and the flesh and bones. He is coming to make us part of his very righteousness. Mm-hmm. So that's what it's looking toward. But, I mean, what what Adam is saying here is like, you are so intimately connected to me. You've been, you've come as a, from a part of me. There's nothing that could tear us apart. Like you are me. I am you. We are so united. Um, and you'll be called woman because she's taken out a man, which is kind of where that comes from. Um, and that's how this whole thing gets started. Like we're inseparable, right? We, mm-hmm. we're, we're made so perfect. And then the next chapter, you know, when sin enters into the world, there's division mm. and hostility and what Adam is saying and singing and, and rejoicing. Notice he's not going, hey, w- what's up with this wound? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know, why did you do this to me? I never gave consent. I didn't sign a form before I went under. Um, you know, he's just over. He's delighted at the prize of his wound. Um which I think is also pretty cool. You know, he doesn't he doesn't say, hey, what's up with this what's up with the scar? Um, he's just overwhelmed at her. He loves her. He is, and sh- it, she is more precious to him because of the wound, because she was taken from a sacrifice that he made. And, mm-hmm. and it just intensifies the relationship. I think that's true in human terms. I think it's also, you know, when we get to heaven, you know, and it says, you know, that the scars are still present in Jesus, right? He still bears the scars in heaven. I think that will amplify and intensify always the love that he feels for us and the love that we feel for him that that the cost of his love will always be on display you know not not in a here's what i did for you and now grovel kind of a way but man do you realize how precious you are to me kind of a way mm-hmm. he's he's not looking back on man i got a bum deal no, <laughs> far from it and isaiah says you know when he counts and considers all the ways isaiah 53 when he considers all the ways that he suffers He's satisfied with what he got out of the deal. Mm. Um, absolutely. And that's kind of mind-boggling to think of. But, you know, 
Jesus comes on the other side of his suffering to produce a bride for himself, and he's delighted at what he's purchased. And it says that for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. I think it's safe for us to go out on a limb here and say that if there was no sin in the world, in a perfect world, the divorce rate would be zero. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> true. You know, is that wherever we find it, it's a manifestation of, of sin, of, a, of broken relationship. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, and it's, you know, the fact that he has to say, leave father and mother. By the way, Adam and Eve don't have a father and mother yet. <laughs> He's, uh, yes. I mean, you know, this instruction that's coming from Moses and the aftermath of that is recognizing, like, when you leave, you're all in. Like, when right. you get married, there's no, okay, I'm retreating back to my home turf and you go to your home turf. because No, it's like everything. You've become bone of bone and flesh of flesh. You become, you know, as the Bible will say, one flesh. You know, you're so intimately connected in this mystery union of marriage, which, by the way, is not just the union of a man and a woman. It's the union of a man and a woman and the Lord. Mm. And so when you enter into that covenant, it is like nothing is going to separate this except for death. Like you are totally faithful. And the, I mean, the, the greatest picture of marriage is Jesus and his church. And, you know, there's absolutely nothing that will allow him or lead him to leave or forsake us. Mm. Unfortunately, sin does come into the world, and you have horrible things like infidelity and adultery and abuse. And the Bible does make exception to that um, and allowing for divorce, but in a, in a perfect world, like it's Team Caston Smith. Laura and I are one. There's yeah. You are not separating us. We are, we're taking on the world, and you know we are one flesh, mm. and God is making us more and more. <laughs> into that one flesh as as time goes on. The union of man and woman and the Lord. That's mm. uh that's a pretty good word to end on, I think. <laughs> yeah. We'll let that stand as our last word on uh, Genesis chapter 2. Uh, we hope that you've enjoyed your time with us and that it's been profitable for you. We do enjoy hearing from you. I, we Both Sam and I have heard from listeners of the podcast, and uh, it's always nice to know that, that you're out there and that you're listening, and uh, I've answered questions to people. What were you saying when you said this? Uh, so if that's <laughs> something that occurs to you, I invite you to send us an email. The email address is outofwater at Rio Vista church.com that's r-i-o vista church.com you could also go to our website and find all the uh, back episodes of out of water for instance if you wanted a fuller discussion on the topic of rest if what sam and i were talking about at the beginning of this podcast you thought i really wish i could hear them talk for an hour about just that topic well that's episode number one of out of water you could go back and listen to it Somebody who's desperately seeking rest. Desperately Let's just let them rest. talk for an hour. That'll put me out. Yeah, that's it. It'll put you, put you right to sleep. So uh, so you can go find those on our website at riovistachurch.com slash out of water. You can also find all of our episodes on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and on Spotify. Sam and I will be back next week as we talk about Genesis chapter 3, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. Water.